Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. China's primary ambition in the world is to keep the Communist Party of China in power. That's why they reacted so strenuously to Tiananmen and why they reacted so strenuously to Hong Kong. I think on the more kind of what they hope to achieve beyond survival is to validate their system as legitimate. They want to show that the liberal values that were enshrined in the UN Charter can be redefined. When I look around today, there's sort of a breathlessness about Chinese military modernization. It's really ramped up resources, and they probably spend on the order of, I've seen various estimates, about 250 billion U.S. dollars a year. This is a strategic challenge decades in the making. It's not Germany in the 1930s. What they can deploy today, especially in terms of area denial, anti-access weapons, is truly unique. Like, nobody has done more with precision-guided, conventionally armed ballistic missiles than the Chinese. John Culver is our country's leading expert on the Chinese military, having served as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency for 35 years, retiring just last year. In one of his last assignments, John served as the intelligence community's national intelligence officer for East Asia, the IC's senior most expert on that region. We just sat down with John to talk all things China. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. John, thank you so much for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Michael, and uh, to hear you again, if not see you. <laughs> Someday we'll be back in the radio studio together. So, John, I want to start with a couple of questions about you and your career, if that's okay. And the first question I want to ask you is, how did you find 
your way to CIA and how did you come to work on China at CIA? And the answer is sort of, uh, but at the same time, stereotypical of the era, but then kind of non-traditional. So I, I, my first job out of college and I graduated in 80 was for a defense contractor working on big army cost accounting and logistics contracts at the start of the Reagan buildup. And after doing that for about four or five years, there was a guy there that I was working with who formerly was CIA. And he suggested I might be a good candidate for uh, analytic position. So I was 25, I guess, and looking for something different. So um, I happened to run across an ad in the Washington Post. And so I answered it with a very stirring patriotic letter about serving my country. And uh, I got contacted, you know, very surreptitiously and asked to meet some gentlemen in a, in a nondescript building down in Arlington. <laughs> and of course, you, you probably already surmised, I, this was a DO recruiting ad. Yeah. So this was Directorate of Operations. And I went through a pretty laborious, laborious process with them for about six months before they decided I wasn't really cut out to be a case officer which in hindsight was a real blessing. <laughs> I'm not sure I have an operational boat in my body. <laughs> Neither so, do I. Yeah. So they passed my file over to, you know, quote, the other side of the house. And uh, yeah. I didn't know what that meant. And then again, lots of back then, you didn't hear from them unless they, you know, you didn't, there was no number to call, no contact point. You just waited. So eventually I got a call and asked to come down for an interview. And uh, it was in probably May of 1985. And, uh, you know, by that time, because I'd been going through uh, the other process, I'd already been background investigated and you know, that stuff. Uh, and so I went down and met this very intimidating but cordial woman. Uh, I'm sure you, you know Lynn Enright, uh -huh. uh, who had then a long interview with seemingly random questions. And uh, finally, at the end of that, asked me, uh, only one of which ever touched on China, and finally asked me when I could start. And, uh, you know, I gave her an appropriate answer and said, start doing what? <laughs> and it was only then that I, I found I was being hired to fill uh, the job as the sole analyst of the People's Liberation Army, wow. the actual ground forces. So, you know, if I had been hired to do Russia or Soviet analysis, I would have been one of hundreds. Yeah. But because the China shop was small and China was at that time a strategic partner of the United States, we didn't have much of an adversarial posture. So that's how I got hired. It was through an ad in the Washington Post, which could never happen. Or I, I do see them occasionally, but it would be far rarer. That's and then great. it was it wasn't that's even great. the right ad. So then I wound up uh, doing <laughs> you know doing that for the next thirty five years, and, and it was a wonderful career. So John, many analysts at CIA work on many different issues during their career. You stayed focused on China. Why? Well, you know, again, referring back to when I joined, China was a strategic partner of the United States. Um, we had hit probably a high point in hindsight of a military relationship that included extensive access to the PLA by the U.S. military, um, Chinese buying U.S. weapons, and then a pretty robust intelligence relationship, you know, that others such as Jim Lilly have written about. Um, and then, of course, Tiananmen happened in 1989. And shortly followed by, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so this thing I had been studying almost for, you know, academic reasons to be smart, to be the best analyst I could be, suddenly took on a really different color. And mm. of course, over the course of the next decade or two or three, 
that continued to evolve. So I, I have to say it was always intriguing. And I got to work, as you did, with some of the best in the business. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate that the first person that managed me, it was my boss and mentor, was our mutual friend, Dennis Wilder. Yeah. So yeah. I had an excellent grounding, you know, in analysis and in the tradecraft of analysis. And then the content kept evolving. And of course, China rose as a global power. And so my kind of insight into the challenge to me as an analyst and then later NIO for East Asia never ceased evolving. Let me ask you one more question before we actually move to China itself. Can you explain what it's like to be an analyst at CIA and how that might have changed over the arc of your career? Well, yeah, I'll do partly as a sales pitch because I'd love to see the, you know, quality of, you know, patriotic, bright Americans continue to want to invest in a career in government and especially in the intelligence services. Um, it's really a unique challenge, as you know. It's being sometimes fed a very disparate set of facts, trying to really understand it and then explain it and make it policy relevant to your customers, which begins with the president of the United States and his cabinet and then can work down through the bureaucracy. Um, and so you can't have a, either more important content or more important set of consumers. Um, and if you're doing your job well and also doing the other parts that aren't just thinking hard, but also then tasking smartly, getting the resources you need from the collection agencies to be able to do your job. It's, it's kind of a really unique challenge and in a way almost an art form. Um, I think in a way the, the oddest thing to me, and I thought about this after I retired uh, 35 years later, is actually kind of how unevolved the basic analytic mission is. And, and mm. as I thought about that, it kind of concerned me. Because I think we still rely almost exclusively on sort of exquisite um, stolen secrets. Um, it's human and SIGINT and then, you know, their brethren in the cyber and other realms. When a lot more is kind of out there in the open source, China now operates globally. It's not, you know, kind of a closed place like it was when I started. And yet the kind of the basic, you know, way that pieces are put together and the sources that are valued and kind of the, you know, there, you, as you know, there's kind of a, a conceit that the more classified something is, the better it is. Yeah. And I think we both know that's not always true. And it wasn't even true in, back in our day, but it's, I think, right. less true today. And so when I, you know, out in the world, as I look at what's being done with open source and big data and analytics, geospatial, commercial imagery, even things like open source SIGINT and, uh, and a form of comment from met metadata, metadata from cellular networks, you can build a hell of a robust picture today that would have been impossible. You know, it would have been a government function in our day is yeah. now out there commercially. And I'm concerned that the U.S. government, its intelligence services need to do a lot better job leveraging those new capabilities and making it career enhancing for analysts and managers in the intelligence community to take a risk and use these and work them and integrate them into our data, our normal workflows so that they can really yeah. inform uh, our finished intelligence. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. That's one of the things I learned when I left government, and it's something the intelligence community has got to get its arms around. So, John, let's focus on China, and maybe the place to start is with China's ambitions in the world. What are their key objectives in the world? What do they want to accomplish with their foreign policy? What do they want in the world and why? How do you think about that? 
Well, Michael, I know you've had Chris Johnson on your show, I think, a record number of times. <laughs> yeah, I and think so. <laughs> you, you, you won't be startled to know that I, I listened to his last uh, session with you, and I don't, I'm not going to really disagree with anything he said. And I think, you know, we both are on the same page when we note the primary, China's primary ambition in the world is to keep the Communist Party of China in power. Um, that they, they, as like a lot of authoritarians and especially good Marxist Leninists, that's not a value judgment, just what they are. Yeah. Um, they, te- they tend to see the world through the prism of threats. And there are, of course, ex- external threats and even uh, really aggressive threats, as, which is how they view the United States and a lot of our alliances. But then especially for, you know, authoritarian government like China, the internal threats, you know, that's why they reacted so strenuously to Tiananmen and why they reacted so strenuously to Hong Kong. So if, you know, there's there's a a great a famous Sovietologist whose name's escaping me right now noted that for an authoritarian, every day is existential. And Mm -hmm. so that's why you see the Chinese not only building up their external security capabilities in the People's Liberation Army, Chinese intelligence services, their diplomatic operations globally, but building up their internal security capabilities um, because they believe that the United States, and this is a very you know, ideological view, is, is a jealous hegemon seeking to re- re- retain its you know, global position as a dominant power and that China has now risen up to the level of the greatest threat to that over the ensuing decades. And so, you know, they believe that we actively pursue color revolutions, that we seek to overthrow um, what they view as what the U.S. views as hostile governments um, and that they, you know, basically can never let their guard down. So they're they are sufficiently paranoid. Um, I think on the more kind of, you know, what they hope to achieve beyond survival is to validate their system as legitimate. That's why you see a lot of investment by the Chinese in the U.N., system in making sure they always have a candidate or a third country candidate they favor to lead the key UN directorates um, because they they want to show that the liberal values that were enshrined in the UN charter um, can be redefined in a way that legitimatizes a non-liberal, non-democratic regime like the like the Communist Party of China. Let me ask you an, another question I asked Chris, and I wouldn't be surprised to get the same answer. But how much of what you just described is driven by one man, Xi Jinping, and how much is driven by national interests, historical forces, etc.? Um, I think from a Chinese perspective, and I'll speak as an American as well, um, I think Xi Jinping is obviously an essential personality in the political arc of China. But he did not, you know, knife fight his way to the top. He was selected by a collective leadership because they felt that his characteristics, both as a provincial leader and the national leader as vice president, um, and his legacy as the son of a revolutionary elder, a very important revolutionary elder, elder uh, Xi Jinping, um, that he was going to bring to the leadership, essential qualities would be essential to defend China against a growing litany of threats as China's power rose. Um, And, you know, the things he attacked first, I think, actually represented collective values of that leadership. First, Mm -hmm. the anti-corruption campaign, um, that the Communist Party, as wealth grew in China and opportunity grew for 
uh, crimes large and small. Uh, even some senior leaders, including in the military, took advantage of that. And the Communist Party understood that a corrupt political organization inside the Communist Party, and especially in the military, which controls the guns, um, was a existential, potentially an existential threat to the party. So he didn't have to overcome resistance to launch that really aggressive anti-corruption campaign, which continues. That They knew that they needed to harden the party and to harden that system against both U.S. and external action and against internal threats which through the nexus of corruption, they always feared would somehow come together into foreign that read that U.S. sponsorship of color revolution in China. So I think, though, that he has, he has you know, accumulated a level of power that I think few of his contemporaries thought possible. You know, a lot of checks and balances that had been built into that system to prevent another Mao. And he hasn't quite cross that line into the personality cult of Mao Zedong, but I think there are a lot of people, including in the party, who are concerned that he has over-accumulated power. So John, how does China's military fit into its future ambitions? What does the Chinese leadership want from its military? Well, to, to kind of echo what I just said, first of all, to defend the Communist Party and ensure its survival. That is from external threats, but also internal ones. And it could never be stated too often that the People's Liberation Army is the armed wing of the Communist Party. It is not the state army of China. Secondly, to be the armed force of a great power, capable of deterring threats to Chinese sovereignty and security. And that, of course, means Taiwan, the South China Sea, and China's economic lifelines through the Strait of Malacca or uh, elsewhere. Uh, especially for oil and energy, and also to protect Chinese citizens, businesses, and the ethnic Chinese diaspora communities from harm or threats of harm. So if that's a ex- more expansive mission set than the PLA had 10 years ago, which you know was to defend Chinese borders at that time. Now it's really right. to defend Chinese interests. And finally, the, the, uh, another thing that uh, another role for the military is to complete this arduous modernization that they've undertaken, and by mid-century to be roughly equivalent to any great military power, especially the United States. Yeah, so that's a great transition to the question about the evolution of the Chinese military over the last 25 years, right? You watched it every day. How did it evolve? Well, it's kind of frustrating because uh, even by, oh my God, this is dating me, it's at least almost 20 years ago, you know, you'll remember we were warning that the PLA was beginning to seriously modernize and had a very coherent strategic set of plans and objectives and that we should assume that they are going to achieve most of their goals. So that was even by the early 2000s. So today, uh, it, I feel that I'm in a weird place because I'm almost having to talk down those who are, I think, going over the top from someone who previously was accused of hyping the PLA. Yeah, I remember. Um, so there's a, you know, and we had fun in our community for a long time. We were like the lone agency forecasting what has actually now obtained. So when I look around today, there's sort of a breathlessness about Chinese military modernization that is, it, to me, almost humorous. You know, I saw recently a news article on the debate within the U.S. military services over budget allocations to counter China. Um, and in that article, it called PLA's area denial capabilities, you know, new. Well, you know, we first warned about them, as I just said, in the mid-2000s. They were deploying by the early 2010s. So 
Call the PLAs modernization, whatever you want, but don't call it a surprise or new. You know, when we used to deliver the infamous scary briefing that I developed with my, my colleagues around 2004, frequently the response we got over the ensuing years was, don't tell me about the enemy I'll have in 10 years when I'm fighting two wars today. Um, so, you know, we saw China start this really, you know, extraordinary military modernization by 1999. It's not a crash program, you know, that started in just the past decade. And after constraining resources to the PLA in the 1980s and 90s, it's really ramped up resources. And they probably spend on the order of, I've seen various estimates, about 250 billion U.S. dollars a year. But China still probably spends less than 1.5% of its GDP on the military. And the PLA's overall share of government spending has actually fallen over the same period. This is a strategic challenge decades in the making. It's not Germany in the 1930s. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with John Culver. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So, John, one more question about the Chinese military itself. What in, in this evolution that you watched, what came easily to them in terms of advancing their capabilities and what did they struggle with? What are they still um, struggling with? Yeah, it's, I would kind of you know, roughly divide sort of their tasks through two kind of burdens they had to overcome. And one was sort of structural and had to do with manpower and kind of professional military arms because – the last time they fought a serious conflict was 1979. So that, that they fought that with kind of Korean and Vietnam or era weapons. And then they watched the United States demonstrate what late 20th century and then 21st century combat looks like. And they knew we, they weren't even in our same league. And then you turn to the technology side and they had never, you know, at the time I joined the agency and really until after 2000, had never designed, developed, innovated, and built a new weapon from scratch. They were working off old Soviet examples, and then in the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, buying Russian hardware in order to fill some of the most glaring kind of hardware gaps. So they bought fighters, submarines, surface-to-air missiles, some anti-ship weapons. Um, and what they've really done in the last you know, really 30 years. Again, this isn't new and it, and it isn't a surprise. But we saw some key benchmarks. Like in, in the early 2000s, they for the first time flew an indigenously developed fighter aircraft that was truly a fourth generation aircraft comparable to an F-16. Now, even there, they had help. Uh, the design was largely derived from the Israeli Lavie uh, fighter. Um, but still, it was notable in that what they had done is built not just an airplane, but built a R&D innovation and design capability inside their defense industrial base. And then we saw that, you know, replicated across the defense industrial base, especially in shipbuilding and, of course, ballistic and cruise missiles. 
and then all of the panoply of kind of derivative technology. So what they can deploy today, especially in terms of uh, area denial, anti-access weapons, is truly unique. Like nobody has done more with precision-guided, conventionally armed ballistic missiles than the Chinese. Can you explain why this anti-access area denial weapons are so important to them? I'll do it in kind of prosaic terms. It might work better on radio anyway. Um, what they found out in the mid-90s when there were tensions on the Taiwan Strait was that the U.S. deploying carrier strike groups, just as we had in the 1950s to protect Taiwan during the Korean War, constituted kind of an American wind button. You know, all we had to do was show up. Mm-hmm. especially with carrier strikes and then with our regional forces deployed to bases in Japan um, or in the Philippines or other treaty allies. And China really had no means to target or to reach any of those forces. And so it, it, you, you might imagine, I mean, just put, it, put, your shoe, put, put yourself in their shoes for a moment, how maddening that must have been for the senior political leadership, that all we had to do as late as 1996 was show up. So what they did is they, they kind of then meticulously broke down what um, I would call the five pillars of American power projection uh, in Asia. And uh, on my list, I'd include four bases, um, U.S. air power, aircraft carriers, which is kind of a different thing from air power itself, mm-hmm. information and space dominance, and then undersea dominance. And then since 2008, they have really attacked each of those pillars. And the, leaving the only area where, we, where I would say we really have military dominance over them is undersea warfare. Hmm. But don't sleep on that because they're spending serious money to be able to track and, and detect and then attack U.S. submarines. So they, they, they basically took our way of war and tried to turn it against us. And I, I think it's, you know, kind of an uh, open you know, knowledge now that they have largely succeeded, that a U.S. decision to intervene in a military conflict with China um, would be one that would be fraught for a U.S. president to decide in a way it wasn't in the mid-90s. So, John, I've heard you talk about a number of myths with regard to the Chinese military. Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, this will sound like, you know, an expert complaining that the perfection of his knowledge is no longer respected. But <laughs> it, I'm also retired, so I'll, I'll you can just kind of run it off to that as well. I'm not sure <laughs> myths is the right expression, but I think that China has moved beyond the domain of experts like you and me and become kind of fodder for pundits. And so there's a natural tendency to draw from historical experience And kind of imprint onto the U.S.-China competition, the characteristics of the Cold War, including in the military domain. Few of these assumptions fit very well. uh, And I frankly wish it was that the current situation we confront with China was as simple as the Cold War. You know, as you know, it's not this nice, clean, bipolar world. China is completely integrated into global economics, completely integrated into the international system to the U.N. and other agencies. Um, and so the ability to kind of divide into sides and then compete in a nice, clean Cold War style isn't available to us. So in the same way that the PLA has become the pacing threat for the Department of Defense and service budgets, uh, you know, they're all being oriented to meet that challenge. And, you know, today, depending on your media preferences, you may have heard that China intends to build bases around the world or project power globally, including into the Atlantic Ocean, that they want to control the moon. Uh, I mean, the 
The reality of current and emerging PLA capabilities is impressive enough without these kind of exaggerations. China is the largest trading power in the world and its interests and citizens span the globe. It has one base overseas in Djibouti, and you know that is really by no means comparable to the 800 U.S. military facilities that exist outside the United States. I'd also add that China has no allies or security or true security partners. It may have strategic relationships with Russia or Pakistan or formerly North Korea, but it just doesn't carry the same weight that the kind of real commitments that we make to our allies and they make to us. And so what I've kind of seen is a breathlessness about PLA modernization that, again, sometimes strikes me as humorous. You know, I, uh, it, 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 I think we don't have to exaggerate their capabilities. They're mm. real. You know, they have a real capability to shape and, and contest areas that where we used to be able to operate freely without fear about Chinese military intervention. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, John, I want to take a deeper dive on Taiwan, which, as you know, is in the news. In fact, I want to ask you a, a series of questions. The first is, do you think the Chinese have a timeline for reunification? You hear some people argue that. You hear some people say that Xi Jinping wants that to be his legacy. Is there a timeline in your mind? Well, Xi Jinping kind of helped those people. Um, short answer, no, I don't think there's a timeline, but... At some point in the next decade, there there might be. I've seen timelines, you know, be considered and even internally adopted by previous leaders. Half the time, they're doing it for kind of their own internal legacy purposes. They want to be able to put a stamp that says they began the process that would lead toward unification. But at the same time, they would set the timeline so far out that they were kicking it down the, the road to be dealt with by their successors. What's different now, of course, is that kind of the factors that kind of created stability over the Taiwan issue over the last 40 years are all weakening. And those three factors are, first, what's going on on the island, on Taiwan, which, uh, as you know, is a robust uh, democracy, increasingly under Chinese constraint uh, to curtail Taiwan's even now limited kind of international standing. And what that's driven is a response among the Taiwan polity that makes the concept of unification under a Communist Party-led China uh, absolutely, you know, uh, null and void. Mm -hmm. It's unacceptable to the vast majority of Taiwanese. So the idea that China could get a friendly Kuomintang, you know, kind of anti-independence government on Taiwan that would be more willing to deal with China, I don't think we're going to see that again. Even the Kuomintang now is a Taiwanese political party that has to compete for votes within a realistic political framework for Taiwan. The second factor that's kind of, you know, easing my uh, confidence that there won't be a timeline for unification is the U.S.-China strategic rivalry. Um, it's added kind of a new impetus for the U.S. to get involved and to play the Taiwan card. It's one of the few really bipartisan issues that exist in our country on foreign and, and even domestic policy. So, you know, I think as Chris Johnson told you a couple of weeks ago, 
there's really not much difference be- so far between Trump era China policy and Biden era China policy, yeah, yeah. even on tariffs and trade. So yeah. that kind of superpower, great power competition animation kind of worries me that uh, it's going to be seen as more useful to, you know, treat Taiwan as a card that can be played. And the third factor is China itself. One of the things that used to give them a reason to back away from what could be viewed as a provocative challenge by us or on Taiwan was it was generally accepted by the Chinese public that they were too weak to uh, be able to push back forcibly. Um, And we saw this certainly after the accidental bombing of their embassy in Belgrade by U.S. forces. Um, They viewed it as a deliberate attack and yet decided that they couldn't respond proportionally um, and would just have to eat bitterness, which is a very common phrase in Chinese. Um, And we saw that again after the EP-3 incident where a Chinese pilot was killed after he collided with the U.S. reconnaissance aircraft near Hainan Island in 2001. Well, today, China no longer has the excuse of being weak, and Chinese domestic opinion is increasingly nationalistic. So if there was an incident or provocation, I'm worried that China would feel that this time, unlike in previous episodes, it could not back down and would have to rise to the to the framing. What could trigger something like that? Well, you know, I, I don't want to be in the... I, well, I'll, I'll just throw out some hypotheticals without endorsing any of these. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think there's a growing chance of real miscommunication with the United States over security issues, over Taiwan, the South China Sea, possibly the Senkaku Islands, um, where forces, our forces and theirs are much more in constant contact with one another. You know, we fly and sail um, wherever international allows, and that brings us into much closer contact more frequently with the Chinese military than was true a decade or more ago. Um, And so kind of, if you will, the ingredients for a potential crisis, another EP3 incident, for example, um, I think is greater today. And I kind of then put a premium on developing some better means of communication and and crisis management. Um, And, you know, then just kind of the intangibles in the world. Like if if we'd had this conversation a year and a half ago, I wouldn't have brought up a pandemic as something that could be driving U.S. policy toward China. But, you know, here we are. So I can't predict the near future either. So it's just kind of a more fraught world, kind of increasingly fed by this dynamic of strategic rivalry. John, I want to ask you a question that sometimes I have a hard time getting a really good answer to. And that's, what's the challenge that China poses to the United States? To put it another way, if China achieves its vision of what it wants the world to look like, which U.S. national interests are at risk. And if you think about terrorists, it's really easy to understand, you know, what's at risk. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about what's at risk from China achieving what it wants to achieve. Well, if China achieves their mid-century goals, which isn't that far away, um, they're, you know, stated by Xi Jinping, um, it's to be kind of uh, the equal of any power in the world, to have created in China a rich country with a strong army um, and legitimatized the Communist Party-led system, this authoritarian system that, re, you know, it doesn't negate or deny that there is such a thing as human rights. It, it, re, it, re, it redefines them and, and makes them collective rights or rights based on 
freedom from want rather than freedom of expression or freedom to develop. Um, and it tends to, you know, frame democracy in international affairs as not the rights of the individual with their government, but the rights of poorer, browner, you know, southern countries against the dominant European, United States, Japan kind of model. So you have that kind of Manichaean framing in a lot of their framing. And in a way, I think what the more most profound threat, you know, it, it I think they, they could pose a threat to U.S. allies and to create instability in Asia under certain circumstances. Um, you know, we can debate all day long whether Taiwan is worth defending or whether we should reduce our policy of ambiguity. But I don't think anyone would dispute that Japan is worth defending, that, you know, freedom from coercion in Asia um, over uh, exploration and exploitation of natural resources in, in in the South China Sea is something that wouldn't cost the United States, and not just in terms of credibility, but in terms of kind of the viability of our our view of the, the what should be the natural relationship between the govern, government and the consent of the governed. You know, the Chinese don't buy into that, and kind of right. what they their, their narrative for the future is kind of runs like this. Um, it's going to get harder. We've seen what pandemics can do to international trade and stability. Um, technology brings a lot of benefits to mankind, but it also is dislocating societies. Um, we live in an information explosion that makes government harder um, and that may require new tools of censorship to prevent bad actors from disrupting or committing acts of terrorism or other forms of kind of political vandalism. And what China's offering, you know, countries in the world is uh, uh, what seems to be a set of answers to those problems, that they're going to give you the means for governance, the means for control. And at a time when the world is threatened by global warming, climate change, the threat of new pandemics, of mass human migration because of technological disruption or environmental damage, that China's going to offer governments, regimes, the means to survive. So it's kind of a dark promise in that way that's based on the idea that things are going to get more challenging collectively around the world and for individual governments. And that through technological censorship and monitoring, through uh, artificial intelligence and big data tools, that they're going to be able to deliver a capacity for governance that has a heavy measure of compulsion. And I think that's a huge threat, not only to the United States, but to kind of democracy writ large mm. on the world stage. So the really hard question, particularly for an intelligence officer, since you never had to do this in the time you're at the agency, is what should our policy be, right? What should what should the United States do about this challenge that it faces with China? How do you think about that? Well, I don't know. I don't know about you, but as an analyst and even a senior, you know, NIO, I was always neuralgic about policy, you know, statements. Um, we we yeah, pride you were, ourselves. You, Right? Yeah. You were trained to be neurologic. <laughs> yes, we pride ourselves on being politically neutral and nonpartisan. And so I'll try to deliver my answer in, in, that, in that spirit. Well, I think, first of all, that no, th no threat that China poses to the United States is as great to, uh, you know, the threat of failing to deal with our own, uh, our own challenges, both in terms of defending democracy. If we're going to stand up for the system globally, it has to be viable and vibrant at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think that similarly, we have to show that we could govern, that the U.S. system of governance after 
uh, I, I would call, you know, real problems, if not failure during the most the, the pandemic, which is still going on. I'm trying to be careful not to talk about it only in the past tense. Yeah. Um, that it's 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 not a great brand right now. We need to, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, give them credit for a lot of things, but especially for uh, vociferously defending their brand. And, you know, they make they make no bones about being fuzzy or huggable or cute. They're about delivering governance, about lifting, uh, by their count, 800 million people out of poverty. Um, and in that, this year just passed, announced that they had eradicated extreme poverty in China. Now, there are problems with all these claims, but take them at face value because they do. And so, you know, we've got to you know, do all the things that Republicans and Democrats say we need to do, which is rebuild our infrastructure, strengthen our democracy, knit, our, knit this country together, you know, again, in a more fundamental and profound way. Um, so that we can continue to play the kind of role that I think the world expects and in most cases needs the U.S. to play to, you know, continue to be that, you know, shining city on the hill. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Very insightful. We hope we can do this again. Well, thanks, Michael. It was a pleasure and it's great hearing your voice again. That was John Culver. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.